0: Good afternoon, universe, and welcome to Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition, breaking down the stronghold, bad opinions, and false notions of the enemy, and setting up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and together we are studying Christian dogma, devoted to the belief that when God speaks, He does so in order that we would have His Word, know it, believe it, hold it, cherish it, guard it, and speak it back. St. Paul exhorts all Christians to hunger for the truth, to watch your life and doctrine closely, to persevere in them, for the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine but instead will turn aside to suit their own desires gathering around them a great number of teachers to teach what their itching ears would rather hear but you christian you must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught because that is the life the source the center of salvation who our god is is what our god says to talk today i have two brothers in arms with me pastor jeffrey reese senior pastor of zion evangelical lutheran church of tacoma washington and pastor timothy winterstein faith lutheran church east wenatchee washington hey uh pastor pastor winterstein are you a senior pastor there too because i I didn't know that uh pastor reese had an associate with him he just uh, absconded with the title senior pastor for the power i think
1: well i'm the only one there is so
0: that makes you bishop of east wenatchee
2: I have an assistant pastor, uh, Doug Taylor, who's uh, he- here um, as a worker priest. I did um, not know that. But, uh, yeah.
0: So what does that mean? But, let, uh, let the listener know what, what does worker priest mean? They may not know that.
2: It uh, generally means that uh, they have a vocation outside of the, the ministry. And, uh, and and actually, in, in Pastor Taylor's case, he's actually right now uh, getting a, a different degree out in uh, uh, Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. And so we only see him once a month. For the, for the time being. But.
0: So in, in some cases, this is because uh, a, a gentleman is, is looking to support the ministry and to, to do ministry in a place where it can't be done without a full-time income. Uh, in other cases, it, it's you're kind of forced to it. You don't have a choice, right? And I, I don't know what if you want to share with what Pastor Taylor's got to deal with, but it is something that when, when ministry needs to be supported and the congregation can't do it, a worker-priest is sort of what a pastor sometimes has to do.
2: Right, and in, in Pastor Taylor's case... Um, one of the reasons why he's getting the the other degree is because uh, he wants to be in a position where he can be a worker priest as needed uh, in the future to a congregation who would not be able to support a full-time pastor.
0: Right on. So uh, we're we're picking up with Dr. Francis Pieper's Dogmatis, Volume 1. We're going to start at the top of page 30, even though we left off on the bottom of page 29 last time. And to kind of review and set up, People is still just setting us up, right? He is preparing us for the delivery of doctrine by insisting that doctrine exists and that we know this because scripture exists and that we know that the scriptures can be understood, that the word of God, which we have delivered to us by the hands of the prophets and the apostles is trustworthy, knowable, believable, confessable. And he connects this then to another reality, which has split all the religions in the world into two camps. The religions of law and the religion, singular, of grace. And all the religions of the world, they end up being religions of law. Religions of do this, do this, do this to be saved. Christianity stands set apart as a religion of grace, that salvation is outside of you and is something that God does to you. And then he goes even further to show how all divisions within Christianity arise from the rejection of this premise of Christianity being a religion of grace. So we can trace all of our divisions, all of our fighting, all of the why we have denominations and whatnot comes down to where we reject what scripture has clearly said. And as a result, end up rejecting the religion of grace alone, and inserting works into that, and those works inevitably divide us. He's then given us some examples. So we spent a couple of weeks here looking at the Roman Catholics, looking at the Reformed and the Protestant bodies to show where the places that we as Lutherans would disagree with them are places where both Scripture is left behind and where grace ultimately is left behind. And if you're out there and you're a Calvinist listening to this, I know you're going to say, whoa, whoa, we never leave grace behind. Well, I encourage you to go back and and listen to those other conversations, and maybe you can kind of see where we're getting at. Obviously, these disagreements have been here for a long time, but this is still our contention, that it really is about what Scripture says alone and what grace means alone. That's two of the three solas or onlys of the Reformation. We're picking up then on the top of page 30, where Pieper is lumped in the synergists with the Reformed or the Calvinists, largely because of the way they approach communion, uh, some of their understanding of Christology. But but it's a very different idea in terms of how one comes to be saved. The synergist, the one who works with God, believes that they have to make a decision or, or make some kind of will effort to be saved. And yet, as we find, just like Dr. Pieper said with the Calvinists, you find that they can't really be consistent in this, because eventually, either they're going to have to deny what Scripture says, or they're going to have to deny grace for themselves, and so they end up running back to, in the case of the Calvinist, universal grace, in the case of the synergist... Grace alone. They have to preach those two things because they're in scripture and Christianity needs them. They just don't line up with their official doctrine. So that's kind of what's going on. And we're in the middle of that on the top of page 30, where Dr. Pieper says, Faith finds entrance only in crushed hearts. And it is the very nature of the Christian faith to rest on grace alone. A consistent synergist, therefore, cannot be a believer. Now, that's intense right there. So I want to stop and just Dig into that right there. That is the nature of Christianity to rest on grace alone. So if you're going to consistently teach that your works save you, then effectively you're going to eventually not be a believer. I mean, is that is that something we need to believe, need to accept, guys?
2: Well, yeah, Peeper's spot on here. I mean, uh, the first thing that I think of whenever I read the uh, "faith finds its entrance only in crushed hearts" uh, from Peeper here is uh, Psalm 51:17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. Um, and then when you when you look at what the New Testament has to say about the law, um, you really cannot be a synergist and adhere to scripture. Uh, the law does not save you. Adherence to the law is not what saves you. Christ's adherence to the law and his work of salvation for you, his death and resurrection is what saves you.
1: Yeah, you think of, uh, or you think of uh, Luther, Christ will only dwell in sinners. Uh, I think that, I mean, this is this is the significance of what makes Christianity, as Pieper points out in another place, what makes Christianity different from every other religion. Uh, do we rely in any part or in in whole on ourselves? And if we do, then to that extent— and finally, completely, we deny Christ's work, that we deny that it's sufficient for us. We deny that, that Christ has done everything to, to accomplish our salvation uh, because there's still something that is required of us. And so uh, believer in this sense, faith holds on to what Christ has done. So if you're doing something yourself, it's no longer by faith.
0: So is this statement saying that, that those who are synergists in their dogma, say, like the Baptists or, or like the Roman Catholics, those who teach a decision in their theology or that you must complete the work of grace after it's been given to you, are we saying that they're all therefore not Christians? There's no Christians in Roman Catholicism. There's no Baptists that are Christians. Is that what he's getting at?
2: No. Um, he's he's saying a consistent synergist cannot be a believer. Um, but then he goes on to talk about the fact that most synergists are not actually consistent. Um, and he, he makes reference to Melanchthon here after a bit about the synergism that Melanchthon struggled with. Uh, he, he really never adhered to that because it wouldn't work. He couldn't adhere to scripture and adhere to that at the same time.
0: Can one of you guys Um, give a little context to that? Like who was Melanchthon and what was that, uh, the synergism that he taught?
1: So Melanchthon, uh, at one point, a little bit later in the time of the Reformation, uh, was this is always the question, right? How does salvation come about and what is the cause of salvation? And Melanchthon a little bit later is trying to work through that and trying to kind of divide out the causes of salvation. And so he doesn't want to attribute salvation to the person, but maybe there is some cause in a renewed will of the person. And so it starts to become and, and the focus starts to shift a little bit onto the person away from complete, the complete cause in Christ himself. So Melanchthon Luther's, uh, student and, uh, Luther's, um, uh, friend at, uh, Wittenberg. Um, there is, there's a little bit of a drift sometimes in the way that Melanchthon thinks. And, uh, and so, so Peeper is, is saying that, uh, and uh, quoting this guy, Frank, that uh, Melanchthon never fully believed this. It it's, seems to be sort of a, a technical theory. And I think that's how it is. And that's why he talks about consistent synergists is because uh, eventually, like, say, on your deathbed, uh, you're either going to – you're going to realize, okay, wait, I'm dying here. My body's going away. There's nothing I can do at this point. Am I going to trust Christ or not? And if you trust Christ, obviously Christ does it all. Uh, if you're on your deathbed and you say, nope, there's still something I got to do, um, at that point you've, you've lost the faith. So, so I think that that's kind of what he's getting at is that when it comes down to it, either you're going to say Christ is everything or you're going to say there's something for me, whether it's a part or a whole, and that's, that can't save you.
2: Yeah. And to, to go back to the original question, uh, we would certainly not say that, you know, all Roman Catholics and Baptists and so forth are going to hell. We would say that their theology is an error. And so there's a danger of drifting away from the faith. The the more error we have in our theology, the greater the danger is of, a, of our drifting away, um, of our losing faith. And we need to be careful about that. That's why we care so much about doctrine, uh, because we love people.
0: So that's where, and we've referenced now this next sentence, I think this is maybe the most important point he makes in this section. He says, those synergists who really believe in grace alone do so... Because in their private prayer life, they do not believe their own doctrine. And this is what he calls in another place that felicitous inconsistency, the happy mistake. So on paper, I say this, and when I'm arguing with you about theology, I say this, and I have all of my uh, proof texts and I can line it all up, but then when I actually go and I have a faith alone relationship with God, it's not uh, really based upon my works or my will at all, it's based upon the work of the Holy Spirit within me, and I just don't realize that I'm denying it with this other teaching on the side. The danger, as you said well there, Pastor Reese, is that there come a point where that other teaching, that that leaven on the side, leavens the whole lump and leaves me believing I really do have to justify myself. And then I'm either in pride or despair. And often, especially in the deathbed scenario, it ends up in despair.
2: It's usually in despair, which the, the only good part about despair is that usually it's really easy to uh, bring them out of that with the gospel. Ah, uh, the scary ones are the pride, are the ones where they they don't they feel like I've lived a good life and everything is fine. and uh, i'm I'm gonna go be with Jesus now. And there's no uh, um, there's no acknowledgement of sin that those are the scary ones.
0: This is all about then, and he references Melanchthon, but the, the evil effects of the synergistic teaching is then what we mean. We're not necessarily condemning individuals. We're condemning lies. We're condemning those things which are not exactly. taught by Scripture, which then have the evil effect right. of hurting individuals, right? So that from this day to the present, synergism has been creating factions and divisions in the Christian church. So we're we're still on this idea. Where did where do the divisions come from? Why do we have denominations? Well, because we don't believe what scripture says as a whole, people have run off on rabbit trails, chasing man-made desires. And those man-made desires are always going to lead us back to the opinion of the law, the religion of works and synergism does that by having us argue that, Oh no, I got to do something in my salvation, which works against the reality of grace alone.
2: Right. And one of the reasons why it creates factions, uh, even among itself, I mean, obviously, there's a there's a, uh, a faction created between synergism and monergism. But synergism in general is deeply splintered because you cannot find two synergists who agree on what aspects of
1: the law must be adhered to. You, I think, uh, and it's for for specifics. Um, I think you can see this when, uh, I, I mean, I don't think that there's probably any Christian who's going to say outright. I believe that your works help you along the path of salvation. Maybe there are. I, I don't. I mean, most of the time they'll say, yes, grace alone. Um, but the problem is when you turn, for example, uh, the works of God into your works. So you might say something like, Jesus has done everything necessary for your salvation. And then you gut it by saying, all you have to do is whatever. Accept him, invite him into your heart. Uh, on the other hand, you see the sort of thing happen where where God's gifts, where he says, I'm going to put my name on you. I'm going to join you to my son's death and resurrection and holy baptism. And we turn that around and say, this is what you're doing to show how much you believe in Jesus. Or uh, here, I'm going to give you my son's body and blood, which is his life for you, the life of that has come down from heaven for the world. I'm going to give that to you freely. And you say, I'm, I'm going up there to show that we have a unified, what, or uh, a remembrance of Jesus, whatever it is. I mean, those you're turning the works of God into your own works and those become then part of the Christian, your Christian faith as you conceive of it. And, and I think that So while at the the wild, no one's going to come out and say probably it's hard to say no one, but no one's probably going to say I'm partly saved by works. We do tend to do that sort of because that's our default position.
0: Even if you were to say all you have to do is believe it, like that's the worst possible thing you could tell me. It's like, well, what do you mean? That's the one thing I can't really do. If I could fear love and trust in God above all things, I don't think I'd be in this predicament.
1: Right. That's why that's why the third part of explanation of the catechism is at the heart of everything. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. That's at the heart of everything that we teach uh, and, and it flows into everything. And what your position on that statement will determine how you view the Christian faith as a whole.
2: A reading of uh, the letter to the Hebrews is a real great remedy for synergism uh, because of the way it it walks you through the Levitical law. And it, it certainly shows how and why it's good, but it also shows what it's not good for. It's not good for salvation.
0: There's a footnote on page 30 from Dr. Luther in his works. I'm not sure it looks like a volume 18, and it speaks very well to everything we've been talking about. Uh, Luther says, as long as a man has any persuasion that he can do even the least thing toward his own salvation, he retains a confidence in himself. He does not humble himself before God, but proposes to himself some place, some time or some work whereby he may at length Attain unto salvation. So the the humiliation of faith is is destroyed by these little footholds of the idea that I can contribute, and the more that that happens, the less need I have to trust in the bleeding, dying Messiah.
2: Yep. Kind of reminds me of I was speaking of Hebrews earlier, Hebrews seven verse eleven. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Hmm.
0: There's another good footnote, 48, comes out of our confessions, and I'd like one of you guys to kind of maybe pull this apart a little bit. It just says, as often as we speak of faith, we wish an object to be understood, namely the promised mercy. So can you talk a little bit about what do you mean faith and its object? Why, Why does faith need an object?
1: I think this is one of the most important points uh, for our modern culture, because how many times do you hear someone say something like, well, you just got to have faith. Uh, I don't mean George Michael, but uh, you you just got to have faith that everything's going to turn out. Okay. And it will, that, that leaves faith floating around freely. And if faith floats around freely, it's going to attach itself to something. It's going to be yourself or it's going to be another person or it's going to be whatever it is that you can find to hang on to that you hope will turn everything for your good. But faith in the sense of Christian faith needs a promise from God because promises from God are the only things that do not change and, and that cannot be shaken by the circumstances or emotions or whatever you, you go through in your life. And so, so, I mean, this, to me, this is at, this is one of the most important, uh, uh, points to make about Christian faith is that it always has an object. And if it doesn't have an object, it's not Christian faith. The object is Christ, that is.
0: Yeah, sometimes I think it's helpful to think about faith as, I think that I get this out of Luther, as an empty sack. And the sack really isn't any good by itself. It, it has a purpose. It needs something to put into it. And you can put a lot of different things into your sack, but it, it's made to hold the word of God And everything else that you put in really doesn't fill the sack, doesn't let the sack actually do what it's supposed to do. In fact, it becomes instead idolatry. And I don't know if the image really continues as as a good analogy there, but that what we really need to carry around in our faith all the time, the thing that would make us alive is not the sky, not the sun, not my hope in general, good times or anything like that, but the scriptures, the word of God. And uh, uh, that pointing again, and this is where Peeper goes in this next section again, is that the reason we say scripture, the reason we say words so much is because because that's the thing that continually tells us the opposite of what the world tells us. That's the thing that continually tells us about who Jesus is, what he's done, the grace alone salvation which has been given. The world doesn't naturally turn to grace, the world turns to works. And so the more we put our, our hearts and our minds into what the world would say, the more we find ourselves out chasing these ladders that never end. So this is where Peter, in the section continues his main argument moving forward, pushing us back to scripture being the only hope we have of attaining unity and avoiding division in the church. He says, At the present time, the dissensions and divisions outside and within the visible church are due to the brazen denial of the divine authority of Scripture on the part of most of the leading theologians. Denying that Holy Scripture is God's own infallible word, these men naturally discard Scripture as the sole source and norm of Christian doctrine, and they uh, eo ipso, that is uh, automatically, I think, do away but the principle of unity in the Christian church. So why do we see these divisions in the world? Because those who are leading voices, those who are the best well-known, keep pushing not scripture, but their own ideas. And in fact, many of them, and he's talking about the liberal theologians in his day, they'll even come out and say, oh yeah, we can't really trust scripture entirely. Today you might hear it more along the lines of, oh, well, that's just your interpretation.
2: The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. If you if you yank the foundation out, you everything crumbles. And Christ Himself is the Word. Um, you cannot have unity in the Christian Church without the Word of God. Uh, this this section is really wonderful in how it draws that point out. the The reason why there is discord and and there is strife in the Christian Church is because so many have drifted from the Word. Yeah. And when you they drift from it. the Word, and you have no unifying uh, that unifying norm then it goes back to the judges. Uh, chapter 17 and chapter 21 both, both say the same thing. Everyone
1: did what was right in his own eyes. You also, since it's our inclination naturally, according to the flesh, we always, every one of us has to be turned back to the Word. There is never a time where we can say, okay, now I possess it. Now I, now I have the word and i don't need to hear it anymore and so so every single one of us constantly has to be turned back so that and so it's in some sense i think it's a continually recreated unity that god does by his word uh and that where we are constantly turned back to christ because otherwise uh we we tend to you know sort of uh uh, the 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 entropy um, that, that naturally happens, uh, sort of drifting and, uh, uh, that we go away from the word. And, and we see this, I think in little ways, like you, you quote a Bible verse and then you go back and look at it and it's not quite exactly how you quoted it. Um, at least that's how I see it in me. And so I constantly have to be turned back to the word so that I don't drift away.
2: Yeah, or you quote it perfectly and then you used it in a way that uh, that uh, denies its actual context because yeah, you forgot well, ha- the original context. <laughs> yeah, and I do that, that too all the time. That happens too.
0: To use the mm-hmm. analogy of the sack again, it's it's like we have holes in our sack. And so we keep putting the word of God into our little bag that we're carrying around, but we we leak. I think it was Dr. Lessing at, at the seminary when we were all there, I would say, you know, the the reason the, the apostles had to be given the Holy Spirit like three times in the book of Acts is because we leak. <laughs> 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 and they had to have him put back in. Uh, we, we just don't hold perfection in ourselves. We are justified by this word. But this word needs to continue to justify us; otherwise, we go back to believing in ourselves because this old Adam is carried around our neck, and he never becomes a believer, right? I mean, he's he's always trying to steal that word from us, like the crow taking the word from the uh, from the path in the parable.
2: Adam is at the old Adam is at best a synergist, and that's that's putting the very best construction on
1: him. <laughs> you know this this point about unity in the truth uh, that I think that's something that's completely disappeared from. Even discussions of unity among Christians, uh, we want we want unity. We say, and so let's all get together and pretend that it's already there. When in fact, it has. It's not the word of God that's created the unity where we all submit and are subjected to the word of God. Instead, it's our desire to get along, and so we try to force unity. And again, we become. Uh, synergists in the terms of, in terms of Christian unity, where we try to make it happen. Uh, and, and we don't pray that the Holy spirit by his word would do what he says the word will do. And, uh, if we're not all submitted to the same word, and that's, I think, to his point about Holy scripture, if we're not all submitted to this, this as the word of God, then we all have our own words and there will never be unity.
0: That's a great place to pick it up on the other side of this break. You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, Pastor Jonathan Fisk talking with Pastor Jeff Reese and Pastor Timothy Winterstein about truth, unity, the word of God, grace alone, and the one hope we have in our Lord Jesus. We'll be back in just a moment. Because I gotta have faith.
3: I'm Gary Duncan, the General Manager of Worldwide KFUO. We promote our various programs. We ask you to listen to your favorite show. We ask you to support our broadcast ministry, and we thank you for that support. But maybe we don't ask you to pray for us as much as we should. Please pray for the staff, management, radio hosts, and volunteers here at Worldwide KFUO. Pray that the message of salvation through Christ is heard clearly by listeners around the world. Pray that we continue to reach into those areas that are hostile to the Word of God. Pray that KFUO continues to reach those people desperately needing to hear the good news message and pray that God continues to bless us financially through the gifts we need to continue our broadcast ministry. Thank you for listening, supporting, and praying for Worldwide KFUO. You truly are appreciated. We are the messenger of good news, AM 850 in St. Louis, worldwide at kfuo.org.
0: The thought of my sons growing up without me inspired me to quit smoking.
2: I talked to my doctors and then
0: I threw away all my cigarettes, ashtrays and lighters.
1: I started exercising instead of smoking.
0: Staying away from alcohol when I was first quitting was key. I kept on trying. Learned something each time. Do whatever it takes. No matter how many times it takes. We did it. So can you.
1: For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and CDC.
3: Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Worldwide KFUO invites you to start and end your day with the Word of God and prayer with morning prayer at 9 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life.
0: Weekdays on the Messenger of Good News, Worldwide KFUO.
3: Imagine if I told you that an earthquake was going to hit tomorrow right where you live. That it would be 6.5 in magnitude with aftershocks occurring twice 25 minutes apart. You'd no doubt talk with your loved ones, and you'd make a plan today. It's true, I can't tell you an earthquake will happen tomorrow. But what if it does? Shouldn't you have a plan? Go to ready.gov slash communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait, communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Yom HaShoah begins, the sound of the siren stops all traffic and people throughout the state of Israel observe two minutes of silent respect, everything and everyone coming to a halt. Signifying the beginning of Yom HaShoah, a 24-hour period ending this evening in respectful remembrance of the six million Jews tragically killed in the Holocaust and the heroism of those who resisted.
0: Most public venues in Israel, theaters, restaurants, pubs, are closed today, while radio and TV programs reflect on the history surrounding the Jewish Holocaust.
3: In 1984, Elie Wiesel and Rabbi Albert Friedlander released a work called The Six Days of Destruction, offering six reflections on the tragedy of the Holocaust, alongside passages from Genesis of the description of the Six Days
0: of Creation
1: brought to you by Museum of the Bible.
0: Right now, you can double the impact of your giving to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. They got their dollar-for-dollar match. It's back. A fantastic opportunity to help new Christians, new Lutherans in places like Slovakia, Mongolia, and Japan have at their fingertips fantastic biblical resources like the Small Catechism, a children's garden of Bible stories, and Good News magazine. Did you know that the cost to translate and print one small catechism in a foreign language is only $5? Now imagine just how far that $5 goes as a tool put into the hands of a faithful pastor to help his people learn the language of the Bible, the importance of confessing the same faith once for all delivered to the saints, and of course that proper distinction between law and gospel. That the gospel is that Jesus wants you to be his own and live under him in his kingdom, which is of course why he shed his precious blood for you. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation is working in over 105 languages with over 840 titles published in 95 of those languages. I'm not kidding when I say they're doing phenomenal work all around the globe and they are certainly worth contacting and supporting with your mission giving. You can learn more about the Lutheran Heritage Foundation at lhfmissions.org. That's lhfmissions.org. Come on, just go ahead right now. Head over, give them five bucks. That'll get two catechisms translated and printed. Totally worth your time. Welcome back to Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition and rebuilding with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. Pastor Jonathan Fisk here talking about dogma, which means truth, with Pastor Jeffrey Reese and Pastor Timothy Winterstein, both Missouri Synod faithful preachers trying to do our best to shout into the storm of this dark and dying age with that singular light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the heart and point and center of what the church is about, what the scripture says, and as we're talking about on page 30 of Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, It is the hope we have, the one hope we have for even unity in the church in this life. And Pastor Winterstein left off, we were talking about this one line here the unity of the church is a unity in the truth. And there maybe is no more profound statement for us to reckon with as postmodern, that is uh, 21st century human beings, that there is this thing called truth that's so outside of us that it doesn't change no matter how we feel about it, and that as congregations, it's really the reason we gather, is to be gathered around that truth. I think, Pastor Winterstein, you were talking about how we're always trying to be synergists, doing our own work to create unity. And I saw that in the parish, uh, serving in congregations, people of goodwill, uh, good Christians, good Lutherans, they, they cared about their faith. But then we, when we would have to try to organize or order or, or think about the future of the church, it always came back to, well, what are we going to do to make fellowship happen? What are we going to do to make people like each other? And the answer almost never was, oh, well, we're going to study scripture even more. It was kind of like, well, we're already doing that. We got enough of that. And we ended up putting our hope in all sorts of things from from potlucks to uh, to pageants.
1: You know, I think in our American culture that what happens is uh, we believe or even if we don't say it, we believe that if we vote on it, that it will come about um, and that that's somehow a determiner of uh, of where we stand and. Um, and I think it's Walter who says, the only reason that you vote is to see who's on the side of truth. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so the question, and, and as you're, you're right, I think, what should we do if we want unity, which we should want and we should pray for and we should desire? What should we, what should we do? We should hear the word of God and pray that word in the faith that trusts that word uh, in, in the word who is Christ. And, and that, that's how unity comes about.
2: Yeah, and recognize and trust that you, the unity we have is in Christ, and that's why Pastor Winterstein's admonition to go to the Word, to pray—that's um, that's where we're going to find our unity, and and the fullness of that unity is when Christ returns, uh, and the the new heaven, new heaven and the new earth are are brought in, and the old the, this fallen world is finally completely fallen away. Um, we, we, we just go, we bend over backwards to try to create unity that makes us satisfied or makes us happy uh, to, we can feel unity when we have it all along uh, in, in Christ himself. And if we would just turn to the word and continue to focus on that.
0: A great place to start in Scripture for unity is uh, the verse that Piper points us to right there, right after that sentence. It's John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. Fairly famous words, even oft quoted, but then I wonder if maybe we emphasize the word free a little more than the word truth in it. Uh, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, so he's talking to those who are believers, not those who have rejected him. He says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples— and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I, sometimes I think maybe think people read that as, if you trust in Jesus, you'll be set free. But there's like two other things going on in between there. It's to trust in Jesus is to be in his word. His word is entirely true, and it is that truth that his word teaches over and against the rest of the world that is the freedom. You can't have one without the other.
1: I think uh, lots of times I hear verse 32 quoted. I don't hear often. Ah, uh, the end of verse 31. So you see that you hear this in the world all the time. If you know, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. As if there's some free-floating truth out there that is, if you can find it, if you can figure out what it is, then you're sort of have some sort of freedom, whatever that means. Uh, the fact is that it's Christ is the truth, and therefore Christ is the freedom. Otherwise. You, you're, you're just making things up and you're back in the exact same position that you were in the beginning because you're looking for something that's true. And when you th- find something you think is true, then you think that you're going to be free from whatever it is that you feel enslaved to. And that's just, uh, Jesus binds this truth and freedom to himself. And that's what, uh, that's where the problem is. And that's what the people in the text uh, have trouble with is they they don't see that truth and freedom in Christ. Uh and that's why they say uh, we've never been slaves to anyone. How is it that you will say you'll become free? Well, you're not in Christ, then you are slaves.
2: Yeah, and well, and you go with Paul here, I it, it's not that you're not a servant. It's who are you a servant to? Are you a servant of Christ? Because if you're not, then you're a servant of the devil.
0: And in that sense, the slavery and the servitude is really about not what I'm doing with, with my hands for my job or or whether I've got citizenship in a country. It's about that old Adam we were talking about before, that he is mm-hmm. chained and bound to sin itself. And so if I—he says this in the context there—if you commit sin, you are a slave to sin. If you want to be set free from that, there's only one way to do that. That's that the Son mm-hmm. would set you free, right? And right. so— um. On this idea of unity again now, still, and, and seeing that the word that Jesus speaks about what he does to save us is the thing that unifies, Dr. Pieper also points us to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and following. This is the closing of the letter of 1 Timothy, which opens with an admonition to set in place right doctrine, and it closes with an admonition to set in place right doctrine. He says, actually start with the end of verse 2, teach and urge these things, I think that means Everything he said up to that point in the entire book. And then he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing if you think that's fighting words he keeps going he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy dissension slander evil suspicion and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain so you know i know we've heard it out there in the world you know doctrine divides or or why are we so incessantly focused on doctrinal purification well if anyone teaches a different doctrine, he's depraved in mind, puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Why would we not want to give our attention to what the word of God actually says?
2: And doctrine does divide. It's supposed to divide. It divides uh, between those who believe it and those who do not.
1: And you, you know. can see that. exact. You can see exactly that in the text where he says they're talking about uh, quarrels about words, but that's obviously set in contrast to the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ um, there there are two kinds of words there are the words of Christ that give life uh, and then there are the words that only produce quarreling and dissension and controversy which people are after and if if we uh, if Paul lived in a time where people quarreled over words uh, anybody who gets on the uh, social media or the internet or wherever, we'll see that uh, this is what we're all about pretty much is uh, quarreling over words instead of turning and receiving the words that Jesus is speaking. Well, every single week and every single time that we open the scriptures and hear them, uh, Jesus gives those sound words and, and you know, somebody has said this, I didn't make it up, but about uh, how do you, How do you find uh, counterfeit gospels? How do you find things that are not the word of Jesus? How do you recognize it? False teaching. Well, the only way is to study the true teaching and to receive the true teaching and hear that. So if you're looking for counterfeit money, you look at what real, true uh, money looks like, and then you can recognize the counterfeit. Likewise, the sound words of Christ cause us to recognize the false words that don't give life.
0: That's where Jesus says, the sheep hear my voice, uh, they will not follow another, right? Because once they know his voice, they become kind of addicted to it. Go ahead, Pastor Reese.
2: I was going to say, I'd be curious to do a study. I only have anecdotal evidence, but in my experience, the churches where there is the most quarreling and controversy are the churches where they have been allowed to kind of just sort of do whatever they want to drift hither and yon, uh, and, Uh, A faithful pastor can come into a congregation and teach right doctrine and and advocate for right practice uh, in worship and so forth and just get raked over the coals by his people uh, and and oftentimes be accused of you are just doing this stuff because it's what you want to do. Uh, and, And yet, really, he is under authority himself and he is doing what he's been given to do. Uh, teaching from the word of God and practicing according to uh, what the church has handed down to him. Um, But, but the, what the, what the pastor wants to do deep down in his heart, because he doesn't like controversy or conflict is to continue to let people do whatever they want, because then he can just kind of, you know, be, you know, fat, dumb and happy. uh, And, uh, and they can do their thing. Um, and, And it's actually in his faithfulness that he's going to find conflict sometimes. Um, but, but over time, as these churches are allowed to just sort of do whatever they want or, or drift here and there, you're going to find all kinds of controversy because no one is going to agree on what is correct. And why is that? Because they've drifted away from the norm of scripture, which is guiding them, is supposed to be guiding them through this whole, through this whole thing.
0: This goes for congregations. This goes for individual lives. This goes for denominations, right? It's, it's exactly. all the way across the board. And there is really nothing more offensive than pointing out that there's a golden cow on the altar and saying, that's a golden cow on the altar and we're worshiping it and that's wrong. There's almost nothing more offensive than that because what that does is it forces you to repent and no one likes repenting. No one likes having to say, you know what? We've been self-justifying ourselves with this particular little idol for many, many years now. That's just not something we're even humanly capable of doing. So the hope is that the grace of our Lord uh, perseveres or overcomes all of that, uh, that both pastor and people gathered around the word are, are, are humiliated enough together that they break and find the salvation, which is so clearly proclaimed in the word, and that they are then uh, built up in that by finding this source of unity, continuing to go say, hey, well, Who's going to say what's right? Who's going to know what truth is? Let's go back to Scripture. Let's go back to Scripture. Let's go back to Scripture. And I'm very thankful that the Missouri Synod, as a history, has a history of doing just that, even though, like, we all have these sacks with the holes in them, right? We're all kind of constantly leaking. We all have to be brought back to the fountain again and again.
1: And if it's the, you know, if it's the true word of Christ, um, what do you need to quarrel about? Um, for, so as a, as a pastor, there's nothing I want more than to say don't take my word for it go check the scriptures go read what jesus says i i if if i'm and if i am uh making this up then show me from the scriptures because that's what i want to be under uh by the holy spirit as well and so so if it's but if it's truly the word of christ there doesn't need to be any quarreling and there doesn't need to be any fear that it's going to be opposed uh or that what, when it's opposed that it's going to be overcome. If it's the word of Christ, it's going to stand regardless of who is standing with it. And so if I say the word of Christ, there doesn't need to be any quarreling about that because he is always the truth. The next
0: sentence there is a bit confusing, I think, because what he's referencing is a bunch of contemporaries to himself, a bunch of movements in the church, which were all teaching the same thing. But I think it's worth reading because I think it's still here today. It just goes under different names, but he says, against what we've just been saying, that unity is in Scripture, he says, but our modern theologians, here that is, contemporaries, the people out there right now making the biggest noise in the name of God, He then he names them specifically the so-called positive theologians, no less than the liberals. Refused to accept scripture as the principle of knowledge, the source and norm of doctrine, the formal principle. A bunch of things there, right? The scripture is the source of knowledge, the norm of doctrine, a formal principle, substituting for it the, and now here's some more of the the stuff, that the language they were using back then. The, quote, experience, or the, quote, erlebnis, or the theologian excuse me the theologizing individual or the faith consciousness or the christian consciousness or the regenerate eye concerning this theological method there is great unanimity but it cannot produce unity in the Christian church. So he says there's all these different words out there that are basically saying the same thing, which is you make up whatever you want to believe and trust in your experience. But the fact is, as unified as you might be in that mystical reality, the mysticism of trusting my experience rather than the word, it will produce nothing but division. And effectively, that's what we've been talking about.
2: Like he says right there, it cannot produce unity in the Christian church. Why? Because everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. And eventually uh, we're going to clash
1: it's sort of an absurd irony of i mean going back to the early 1900s when when peepers doing this uh, to today this this irony that that my experience is so certain and firm and the word of christ which has been handed down to us by prophets and apostles is all sort of it's, well who knows everybody interprets it it's all different who knows what's what the truth is and and we've sort of reversed and made things exactly the opposite of what they should be, where where we quarrel about the sound words of the Lord and we agree on the words of people or my own words or my own experience. And so even though we maybe don't talk about the theologians today, don't describe themselves these ways. It's pretty much the same thing.
0: We use words today like, you know, people will find their unity by discovering their purposes or uh, people will find their unity in dreaming big dreams and taking risks or even something like, you know, we're going to find our unity by having small group fellowships where people will get together in their houses and get to really know each other. It's not that any of those things are necessarily bad, right? We're going to find unity in in the music which lifts up our spirits. It's not like music that lifts up your spirit is is bad, Unless you decide to make it your idol, unless you turn it into the golden cow, which is going to make unity and perfection in your church. And then it's really bad. Then it's taken the place of the one thing that we need. And am I beating a dead horse here? You know, the, the word of God alone can be our source. I mean, think about
1: it. Is, is there any time or any thing that ever sort of makes you happy that's maybe not good? <laughs> I mean— we, I think we all know that that there are things that, that we sometimes uh, uh, derive sinful enjoyment from that are not good. And so that's why the thing that determines what is good has to come from outside of us, as you're saying. Because if it comes from inside of us, uh, we are often led astray. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Uh, so um, to... to put any kind of trust or any kind of, uh, uh, certainty there is to put in exactly the wrong place.
2: I'm just, I can't help but see this all drifting us, uh, into the next paragraph. The one thing that, uh, Pieper says there is great unanimity among these folks is that they've all agreed to discard the Holy scriptures.
0: Right. And, and that's where, so he's got this quote here from, is it Niche Stefan? that I think mm-hmm. is really worth looking at. And he he's describing what he sees in the Protestant world. He says, there are uncounted divergencies these divergencies being due to the differences in the religious individualities of the dogmaticians or in the degree of their scientific consistency. That is, you know, there, there's as many teachings as there are teachers, and that might be due to their personalities. It might be due to their their reason or the psychological schools. But as many teachers are as out there, that's the divergence, that's the differences, that's the the, the breakdown that we have And in today's uh, a 21st century world where there's a, a small church on every corner led by mom and pop who decided you know you, you got the new jerusalem church then you got the new new revised jerusalem church and then the the break off <laughs> uh, a second start re all over again jerusalem church you know it, how many times can you split because each individual thinks that they're the one kind of appointed to save the church with their ideas but at one point he says the moderns meet again As with great unanimity they have discarded the holy scriptures as the only source and standard of the Christian doctrine, so with great unanimity they repudiate the scripture doctrine of the vicarious satisfaction. And so necessarily... also the scripture doctrine of justification by faith without deeds of the law. And, And this is a point we haven't talked about today really much, but it really is at the heart of this as well. It's not like the moment you question whether Jonah was a real person, you toss the vicarious satisfaction, the blood atonement, death of Jesus, on behalf of your sins out the window, but you take the first step down that path. And so those traditions, which reject scripture alone, eventually can't help but deny the vicarious satisfaction of Christ, and once you get that gone, well, now that Christ isn't the singular payment for the wrath of God, the, the payment for your sin, well, then grace alone's got to go too.
2: Yeah, and uh, I, I've had—I'm uh, trying to remember—it was a parishioner from years ago who uh, was trying to argue for the idea that you—you you can there's different there's different roads, but they all lead to the same place. And I said, yeah, but some are more likely to get you lost than others.
1: Ha. Huh. The uh, I have a friend who uh, described that sort of process as uh, like j- playing Jenga, where uh, you, you can maybe uh, try and pull out a couple blocks, and it may not fall over immediately, but you're going to keep pulling blocks out. And eventually, the whole thing is coming down, uh, regardless of which blocks you take out. Now, obviously, some blocks in the Christian faith um, are... Ah, uh, more significant, the foundation, the cornerstone is Christ and his apostles and prophets. Um, you 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 lose that. Uh, there isn't the building cannot stand. Uh, but some people think, oh, if I only if if we if we don't have this or if we deny this, then we'll still be okay. But eventually, as we see, it, I mean, it's part of our experience in this world. We see it, it comes down eventually.
2: Yeah, well, that's that's right along the lines of uh, the uh, church fathers talking about the corpus doctrinae, the um, the body of doctrine. Um, You know, there there are different body parts that are of greater significance uh, within the body of doctrine. But you have to ask yourself, you know, would you willingly allow someone to cut your pinky toe off? You you could live without it.
1: Why not let them cut it off? It's it's important. And uh, and finally, the the body of doctrine is really it's Christ. It is, it is his entirety. You know, you can't, di- you can't distinguish or, or among the words of Jesus as if some words of Jesus are more important than others. The so the person who believes Jesus believes all his words, even if they don't, according to the flesh, like them. And so, so this is why the, the body of doctrine is such a, a significant thing. Um, and, uh, You know, I I think it could probably, the analogy again probably breaks down somewhere. But the point is do you believe Jesus? And if you believe Jesus, you believe his words. Because, like with God's words, you can't separate the word from the one who speaks it. Our words, maybe you could try and do that. But God's words are, uh, you can't separate. God from His word, or God from His actions, and uh, in fact, His actions are His words. Uh, just like you know, my one of my favorite passages uh, in Exodus um, thirty-two, where uh, where God appears to Moses and He declares His name, but while He's declaring His name, He says what He does, and I think that 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 shows us. You can't separate out God from his actions, from his words, what God says he does and what he does, he says, and that's who he is. And so this is why you can't take parts of the body of doctrine away.
0: My guest, Pastor Timothy Winterstein of Faith Lutheran Church in East Wenatchee, Washington, and Pastor Jeffrey Reese, Senior Pastor of Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church of Tacoma, Washington, talking about Dr. Pieper, scripture, truth, grace alone. Thank you, gentlemen, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. And we certainly hope that you've heard that good news in the last hour. Cross Defense is listener-supported. We rely on your giving to KFUO to keep Cross Defense on the air and coming to you via the Internet. If you haven't yet become an annual contributor to KFUO Radio, do consider doing so and letting them know that your reason for contributing is your hunger for more Cross Defense. You know, we were talking about a moment ago this idea that all paths lead to God, all the roads everyone's taking, somehow they're going to get there. And Jesus, in his word, had a different idea. He said there's only two paths, and one is really wide. In fact, he could probably fit all the other paths in the world on this wide path. Everyone's on it, he says, but it's going straight to destruction. And then there's this narrow path, and few find it, he says, but it's not going to destruction. It's going to salvation. That, that narrow path is the wounds in his hands and his feet, the wound in his side. It is his cross It is his very body, and when we chop apart the words that he's given us, when we clip them off and throw them away, all we're doing is hacking away at that body on the cross, when what we need more is to have that body come to us, be put into us, be given to us as our one singular eternal hope, that satisfying grace before the Father on Judgment Day. Trust in that, my friends, and hold tight to it until we come back next week for Cross Defense. Until then, I'm Pastor Jonathan Fisk. Rock on.